Welcome to Bone to Pick, the official podcast of Hip Bone Music and Michael Davis. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hipbonemusic or find us on Twitter at hipbonemusic. Bone to Pick features interviews with legends of the musical field conducted by the hip bone himself, Mr. Michael Davis. Hi everybody, Michael Davis here at Hip Bone Music and I am extremely excited to announce the release of our much anticipated and awaited 10 minute warm up book and play along CD. We are going to be releasing that on September 16th, Monday, September 16th. It'll be at hipbonemusic.com for you to pick up and check it out. I am just so excited for the way it's turned out. I just got the initial copies from the printer and the first run looks terrific. Uh, the CDs have just come in and sound wonderful. It's 12 brand new exercises, uh, 12 brand new play along tracks, and each exercise has three variations. So that's kind of a departure from what we've done in the past. It gives you lots of options and can really kind of custom fit your warm up every day for how your chops might be feeling and might, what might give you the best results in the shortest amount of time. Uh, I was very fortunate to get Phil Smith to do the trumpet version demonstrations, and I did the uh, trombone version demonstrations myself. So it gives you something to uh, kind of base your sound off of and give you an idea of uh, you know where you might want to go in your own playing. So check us out on Monday, September 16th. The 10-minute warm-up will be released, and we look forward to getting this out to you. Check us out at hipbonemusic.com. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick. And we are coming to you today from Los Angeles, California. And I am really, really pleased to be uh, interviewing our two artists of the month this month. Uh, two of my favorite brass players anywhere in the world. Uh, they are two of the top call session players here in Los Angeles. Uh, virtuosic players, each one of them. Uh, the great Wayne Bergeron and the great Andy Martin. Wayne and Andy, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Thank these, you, Mike. These guys have done uh, everything they've recorded from I looked at the, the range of uh, artists, it's incredible. Everything from the Pussycat Dolls to Coldplay to Earth, Wind & Fire to Beyonce, just to name a couple. Uh, they've played together on the Academy Awards for years. Um, they've done their own CDs as solo artists, incredible stuff. You guys have recorded on countless motion pictures, television shows. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the amazing playing you did on the incredible soundtrack and, oh, and uh, Andy, a lot of your stuff that you've the American Idol stuff for years. And it's like the list goes on and on. So uh, I'll stop talking and jump in and uh, get these questions going. Um, I know you guys are both from basically from California, Southern California. Andy started out in Northern California. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your early musical experiences. What got you on the trumpet? What got you on the trombone? Um, and maybe some of maybe some of your early influences. Uh, Wayne, you want to sure? Yeah, um, I started uh, the way I got started playing. Actually, uh, I started on French horn. I'll give you the, the quick version of the story because <laughs> most people know it. But uh, my school was vandalized. French horn got destroyed. They switched me to trumpet, and uh, and I kind of had natural range on the trumpet as a kid. So so I had a, I was hitting a double high C when I was twelve, 
You know, it wow. kind of sounded like somebody saw in a cat in half, but it was still a double high C, so I used to play a double high C on and everything, and I get a lot of attention for it. And it's probably why I keep playing. And I still play a double high C on everything, even if the chord doesn't call for it. Yeah. I still play. Yeah. <laughs> no, so I, that's how I got started playing, basically. And my, my band director, this guy Ron Savitt, was a junior high band director, was a very good trumpet player. And he kind of took me under his wing and, you know, tried to teach me that there was more to life than that. And different styles of music and it uh, took a while for it to sink in but eventually i i started to grasp it you know very cool well, i see is still the most important thing yeah. in my life but. <laughs> well my, my mind i was always been i've never heard a chord that couldn't be improved with a high note so <laughs> and good. a double that's, high c even better that's a really good high note uh, logic i like that <laughs> and uh, andy how about yourself the early years of andy martin yeah well i i grew up in northern california first for eight years and then my family moved to long beach because my dad who was a trumpet player and a music educator he uh, got a position at California State University at Long Beach teaching his assistant director of bands. And his example for me and my two older brothers was always the, the thing that got me into music because he's a great trumpet player. He always had the admiration of all the people. There was jam sessions, you know, and they're all like, hey, Dave, wow, oh, my God. And he's telling jokes and he's, you know, drinking and smoking. No, no, he's, he's <laughs> no but he was having the time of his life. So he was the example for me and my brothers, like, wow, we want to do that. You know, that's, that looks totally like fun. So uh, we moved to Long Beach, and they have a great uh, music program in Long Beach when I was a kid. I mean, mm -hmm. I had 125 people in my junior high school band, which tells you, I mean, there's a lot wow. of people playing in the, the school systems in Long Beach, and it was a great system to grow up in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was my, my up to high school. That was great. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I remember being grown up in the Bay Area and hearing about the Martin brothers. It was like a big deal. We were all scared to death of Andy Martin as uh, the young trout ball players. So we never really thought much of it down there. <laughs> <laughs> no, Andy's dad is a totally cool guy. I can see why, you know. Yeah. To this day, I mean, he he's just a music buff and, and comes to every gig that Andy does. And it's, you know, it's always kind of there. And he's got very cool parents. Um, maybe we could take uh, from when you guys got out of school and, 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 you know, your early years and experiences maybe here in Los Angeles and any other experiences that jump out at you in terms of the, your beginning years as professionals. And in particular, maybe, Wayne, you could talk a little bit about uh, your time with Maynard and, and what the influence he had on you. Yeah, um, it was kind of a slow go for me uh, in Los Angeles, even though I had some natural ability when I was young. I wasn't really that great of a musician, you know, so through mm -hmm. high school. I was okay. I was a pretty good player. I made the all-star band and stuff, but there was, there was guys that played a lot better than me and I felt were more mature players. And so I had kind of a slow go at it for me. Hmm. As I got into my 20s, uh, I ended up on the road. My first road gig was actually to New York, actually, with, uh, with Buddy Miles. Remember that? Yeah, name? sure, of course. My first road gig, and it's kind of like this, uh, you know, I have a day gig. I was working at McDonnell Douglas Aircraft at the time and, uh, you know, making air, airplane parts hmm. and uh, playing on the weekends a little bit in wedding bands. Uh, I got a call to do this job. So I said, oh, great, I've made it. So I quit my job, this great job. And we start rehearsing with Buddy Miles, who's like four hours late to every rehearsal. And, and you know, there's all kinds of shenanigans going on. But we end up going on this road trip <clears throat> to New York. Got a plane I'd never been to New York before. There's limousines for us. I'm going, man, how cool is this? That's when, and that's when all the, uh, the luxury ended. As they took us to the Chelsea Hotel, which at that time, was, you know, it's where, as a matter of fact, I stayed in the room where Sid Vicious murdered his girlfriend. Oh, uh, yeah. So you yeah. can imagine the luxury. Yeah, yeah. This place. And there was four of us to a room. Brandon Fields and I, this guy Lori Cole and uh, Jeff Jorgensen, we roomed together. And uh, I got stranded there. Mm. You know, I had a plane ticket home, fortunately. And uh, so we did three or four gigs, never got paid. You know, Buddy owes me money to this day, but, you know, he's dead now, so I'm not wow. going to yeah. get my dough, I guess. <laughs> I remember seeing him at the NAMM show. 
one year, and he's a big old dude, you know, and he has in his teeth he had BM and gold, you know, Buddy Miles. And I see him, and he goes, Bergeron! And he gives me a big hug, and I'm patting him down. Where's your wallet? Because <laughs> 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 he'd done the California Raisins commercials, all these jingles. He'd make oh, a bunch make of money. Yeah. So anyway, that was kind of my first road experience of going, ah, showbiz, this is great, you know. I moved back in with my mom. Uh, but the players that I met on that gig, I met Brandon Fields, was, was a big influence, because I'd never played with a musician at that time in my life that played that strong mm-hmm. on his instrument. I mean, I just, he was head turning, as Andy can tell you, yeah, man. Just like, great. unbelievably great, energetic player. And I got to be friends with him. And so he was playing with a lot better musicians than I was playing with. So I got to meet Walt Fowler, who was his good buddy. And okay. Walt is, I don't know if you know Walt's playing, but he's an sure, unbelievably great musician. And uh, I got to be friends with him, but I always admired that. And it, and it, and it actually Bonded me into being a great, a better player because I started hearing different stuff and going, man, I got to work on this. Mm. I got to practice more. So, you know, we can all kind of trace our pivotal point back in our careers where maybe it made a turn for the right thing. And so that trip, as bad as it was for me, it kind of sent me off into this direction. And, and all my work has kind of spawned from that. It's wow. all grown from knowing Brandon and meeting different people he knew, and then meeting those people, and you know, became wow. a better musician through all of it as well. So things happen for a reason, I guess. Amazing story, yeah. And then. I mean, it's you can laugh about it now, not getting paid, but it's part of the business. And they, <laughs> you learn that lesson right off the very, bat, very right? Valuable lesson. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, Andy and I, we, we worked at Disneyland. I ended up auditioning for gigs there. We we both worked there off and on for That's years right. and years and years, and did that stuff. And you meet players there too, as, as goofy of a gig as that is. You know, wearing purple tights and, <clears throat> and all the shenanigans you have to do there. But you, there's a lot of great players there. It's so a lot of competition and a lot of practicing together and learning things. So that was another. Uh, training ground for me where I learned a lot because I played with a lot of, of fine players there and, uh, you know, got, got some more experience. Um, and as time went on, I started playing in better bands and, mm-hmm. and, and meeting different, different cats. And uh, the guy most piv- pivotal in my career was a few, but probably Warren Looning. Wow. Because he kind of took a liking to me early on. I was just subbing in Bob Lawrence's band mm-hmm. and we got to be friends. And uh, he started recommending me, you know, to big contractors. Wow. So I got in there and got my chance and uh, terrified. You know, you remember your first big recording session, probably they're scared to death, playing the easiest music I've ever seen and terrified that you're <laughs> yeah, going to make course. a mistake, you know? Of course. So uh, basically, you know, guys like uh, Warren Lunding, Rick Baptist, and George Graham, and Gary Grant, they all kind of helped me out, yeah. you know, coming through the ranks. And like, as you know, if nobody recommends you, you're never going to work, no matter how great you play. Of course. So yeah. That was very helpful. Very yeah. cool. Now basically, in a nutshell, that's kind of how things got started for me. Yeah, good stuff. Andy, how about yourself after you got out of Long Beach? Yeah, well, I got serious in high school. I think I started to practice. Probably my senior year in high school, I decided I better start putting it in the woodshed, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, I was, I heard this guy, Scott Kyle, who went to Wilson <laughs> High School, a year older than me, and um, I heard him play, and he was just phenomenal. And this is when Bill watches his record after that 4-4 walk-up cadenza that he played, and Scott used to play that in all the jazz festivals, note for note, like Watchers played it on the record. And I was like, wow, this guy's unbelievable. And, and that's when I got exposed to players like Carl Fontana. My dad bought me a Carl Fontana record, the Hannah Fontana band, Live at Concord, sure. and I wore the thing out. I just yeah. wore it out. And then I had met Frank Rossellino my last year in high school, shortly before he passed away. And that was, he was a big influence, too. So Carl Fontana and Frank Rossellino were the first guys I heard that my dad exposed me to. And a teacher, Rick Hahn, exposed me to Frank Rossellino because he was, he was promoting the concert that Frank was playing. It was a concert with Harold Land, Blue Mitchell, and Frank, and then wow. Jim Cox and Paul Krybik and... Um, oh, and some local boys. Yeah. Back yeah. 
who was playing bass? Uh, Jay, Jay Anderson. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. Wow. And so this concert, so I met Frank at this concert, and it was like a big springboard for me, just like, wow, I met this guy, and he's unbelievable, you know? Yeah. And so I started practicing. My dad was dragging me and my brothers to rehearsal bands when I was in high school, so I got exposure to some older players. And then I, I went to college for just a second. Um, actually, didn't enroll in Long Beach State, but I played in the jazz band. We have the same college experience, basically. <laughs> and, and we I was denied going to college. <laughs> I was denied. Uh, entrance into Long Beach State, but John Prince let me play in the jazz band anyway, because um, I guess he needed a trombone player. Uh, so that was cool. And then I met guys like Gordon Goodwin and, and Wayne at Disneyland. Playing, and I played in a Dixieland band called Jazz Miners. I won an audition. I was already a bebop player, and I learned how to play Dixieland from my dad's records. Of course, he, I said, oh, what am I going to do? I don't know how to play Dixieland music. And I was already into J.J. Johnson and uh, mm -hmm. these other guys. And he says, oh, here's a Jack Teagarden record. Why don't you listen to that? And I did the audition the next day, got the gig. Worked for Disneyland. Worked at Disneyland for almost two years, and then I quit. Like Wayne, quit a job. I quit just because I had a three-week tour with Lou Rawls. You know, I was 20 years old. And I got this three-week tour. Okay, I quit Disneyland. You know, <laughs> I could have stayed the job and worked forever. You know, but it actually turned out to be a benefit because then I had nothing when I got home off the road, and I really was just practicing and just making every rehearsal that I could with whether it be you know a big band, small jazz group, or whatever. I just practiced a lot. Took lessons from Roy Main. Charlie Shoemake, and just um, then I met Wayne. What, I was about twenty, and you. Yeah, friend. we were youngsters. Yeah, we kind of grew up in the business band together. together. Yep, Ralph Blaze band. All these Ralph Blaze. Yeah. Yeah, this well, big you, band leader. You guys, uh, you guys have gone from these great beginnings and and you know become two of the top call session players in L.A. and and uh, you know an, an impressive accomplishment by any measure. Um, you know, when I look at your resumes, which I did in preparing for this interview, um, you know, you guys have recorded virtually with everybody. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit as the interview goes on uh, about your solo careers. But um, if it's possible, just give us some, some of the highlights. I mean, you've done so much stuff, but what are a few of the highlights as you look back over the last 20 years in terms of maybe in the, in the category of record dates or mo motion picture soundtracks, TV shows? Um, Andy, maybe we'll start with you on this one. Uh, just some things that jump out at you as, as favorite memories in terms of your career. Well, a, a popular one of my clinics, I, I just mentioned that I played a little trombone solo on Monsters, Inc. in the opening credits, and, oh, okay. and all the kids go nuts. Oh, wow, I heard that loud. And it's like, well, that was one three-hour session, I guess, one afternoon. But that was pretty cool because Tom Scott played the soprano solo, and it was, it was kind of a little all-star band they put together for the, just the opening credits of that movie. That was kind of fun. Uh, but as far as other things that I've done on my own, playing with the Metropole Orchestra, for two radio broadcasts, which were later made into a CD from a German record label, which was that, that was a really highlight for me. I was, yeah. I've never been more nervous. <laughs> you, you walk into the studio in front of a 60 piece orchestra and you're the guy. You know, yeah. it's like I never thought I'd be in that position ever in my <laughs> life, you know, so that was a big deal for me. And um, just, I mean, it's kind of funny because I know I don't look back too much. I'm always looking forward. Wayne remembers everything. He remembers licks from recording sessions from 1985 <laughs> and stuff like that. And I, man, my, either my memory is horrible or I don't know. I just think I keep the forward path and try to improve and keep it going. You know. But I remember stuff like that. But there's a lot of things I don't remember. You know, that, like the other things like you don't know that, but you know, this lick from 1970. You know, yeah. fingering the guy used on it. You know, <laughs> unbelievable. But yeah, that's. Um, 
It'll and come to me. I know you've been a, a part of the, but you guys have both been a part of the Academy Awards uh, or yeah. for a while. What's, Way more what's, than myself, yeah. Off and on, kind of. Really. What's that experience like? Uh, it's pretty interesting because they, now they kind of do it different than they used to because they used to just do it live at the at the TV show. Now mm-hmm. they do it separate, usually at Capitol Records. You're in a separate room and yeah, you feel like you're year. not part of the program where you were in the pit before, and that's more exciting because then you have six pieces of music in front of you and you're listening to the conductor saying, okay, play number three now because he got the word who the winner was, and oh, then right, so you just play. But it's kind of different now. Nowadays, it's a little different. Yeah, it, it goes back and forth. Last year, they did it at Capitol, but that was logistical reasons because the Cirque du Soleil show yeah. is there, and so they take up the whole pit with their apparatus. Oh. And so they said, well, we're going to put the band, you know, so hopefully it'll be back next year. But we don't, we don't do it every year. There's guys that have done it for years and years, but we've been kind of in and out of there. I've done it a little bit more uh, recently. And uh, it's fun, you know. It's it's fun. It's it's another gig. It's another good paying gig. You know, right, you look right. at a money buys. It's a, it's the best live, best paying live TV show. But is it musically better than anything so else? So there's pre-record right, sessions right. all week before yeah, the show. So, so they're they're just playing the tape of us playing sometimes during the TV yeah, show. It's not right. as exciting. Right. But it's fun. The, the last year, this last year has been was more fun than previous years for me because we had we played a lot because it was a like a there was like a musical theme. So, you know, Chicago and, and uh, James Bond, all this, there was a lot of music. So we had a lot of stuff to play. So that made it fun. And a lot, a lot of times it's, you know, you know it can be, yeah. it's a week long, a, long and you're not playing very much. It can be, it can be boring, you know. Yeah. I'm glad to have the gig, but I'd rather be working like a dog yeah. than, than just sitting, sitting there. The year before, uh, Hans Zimmer had done the music and he's much more sound design typewriter. So for the trumpet, I mean, the opening credits, I had a second line G. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, my note for the the melody, <laughs> you know. And all the strings were doing all their stuff, and so you know, for that kind of thing for brass players, right, right. not as exciting as you know. What about for for yourself, Wayne, in terms of the the highlights of uh, sessions that stand out? I, in particular, I'd love to hear about the Incredibles. Uh, that was a fun movie call. I mean, you know, it's like orchestra work. You know, we we have that saying that it's uh, it's ninety five percent boredom and five percent sheer terror mm-hmm. for brass players. You know, that was one of those sheer terror. Yeah, I would imagine so. Because yeah. uh, he walked in. I was playing second, actually, and McBapp was playing first. And, uh, but he walked in, and I opened a second trumpet book up, and they're kind of writing for us, you know. And so Rick would have plunger solos, and I'd have some high stuff, and you have a little bit of high stuff. But I ended up ending, ending up with a lot of high stuff in the second trumpet book. So it was pretty terrifying and, and, and very difficult. And they have us in the front because they wanted to do everything to two-inch tape. They wanted oh, to, really? They, wow. wanted, they wanted to sound like an old James Bond movie. Right. And a matter of fact, John Barry had done the original score, and they'd thrown it out. Wow. You know, and so then they found Michael Giacchino, and that, that's what put him on the map, mm. was that movie. He saved the day for Pixar. Wow. So we, uh, we came, so they put the trumpets right in the front under the conductor so we wouldn't be bleeding in all the mics, and they had the brass in the middle, so the trombones uh, behind us, and then the tubas and French horns behind them. And uh, that way, for bleed, because we had to do everything all together, we couldn't do any, let's do the brass wow. take first. Oof. And so all this hard music, and, and not just difficult uh, brass writing. I mean, the strings are playing a, a million notes, and the woodwinds are playing a million notes. So it was it was uh, it was difficult, but fun. Yeah. And and we did a lot of sessions, maybe ten double dates. Wow. On that, so it was a nice a nice gig, and a, and it made a nice left a nice mark. You know, I think it's very sure. very. Uh, there's there's rumor of a Incredibles too. You know. Cool. So anyway, yeah, so I'm proud of the stuff on there. It's kind of he likes the attention from the string players. That I, well, I do like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> I mean, other movies like recently I did uh, 
And then I did. And then, <laughs> no, I played on a Monsters University, and uh, there's a little pep band scene in there, and they had these trumpet and trombone solos. And so, you know, Dan Higgins had orchestrated them, and he warned me, he goes, hey, there's going to be some little solos. They might want you to play the melody. They might want you to, like, uh, so I go, okay. So I get there, and I, we were trading, like, a sax solo and trombone. So I played, so I kind of played the melody, and I played up high, and I played kind of like pep band guy, you know, like a hot dog in high school. Right. And, uh, and then I went and watched the movie, and I had my daughter with me. I go, hey, I have a solo right here. And they'd replaced it <laughs> with something really lame. Uh, yeah. And I hate to say that because of whoever played it, but it sounded like almost like they'd taken samples of stuff and manufactured what they wanted. Yeah. It sounded synthesized, and I was like, oh, there we go. There's Hollywood. There's the real Hollywood right there. Mm. You know? I, I guess that's the, yeah. So that was a little fresh. With technology now that everybody can move things around, that's the danger, right? It like, sounded like they manufactured a solo. I don't know. It didn't sound like anything I would even play or could right. play. Right. You know, it was like this. You know, it was like, like I, I couldn't even play it if I, if I wanted to, you know. So that was kind of frustrating that, you know, we end up on the cutting room floor sometime, but, you know, editing room floor. Yeah. The nature of the beast, I suppose. Um, maybe we'll shift gears a little bit here and talk uh, about a specific aspect of playing. I consider both of you guys, and I've heard you on so many times on, on uh, records, to be both exceptional lead players. And, you know, I think there's a lot of attention, of course, to the lead trumpet, as there should be. But I think, you know, great lead trombone playing, it's almost somewhat of a lost art. Not, not totally, but I know out in New York, I mean, a lot of the work that I do, I'm often the only trombone, although we just did these Tony Bennett records or sessions we were talking about, and it was nice to have a full section, of course. But anyway, all that said... Andy, I've always thought of you as just an exceptional uh, lead trombone player. And part of the reason why I wanted to do the interview with you guys together, I know you're very close friends, but I, I also think musically you guys hook up so well together. Uh, hearing you on Gordon's band uh, many times, I mean, it's just you guys lock up in a way that's very special. Um, I, I wanted to maybe, if you, if you don't mind, just talking for a second about how you approach uh, lead playing and how, you know, what you look for from both other lead players and for what you look for from from section players yeah uh, well I had good examples you know growing up as a young player in Los Angeles there was I mean Lee trombone was you had Dick Nash you had Lloyd Olliet you had Charlie Loper and you had these other guys I mean when they played you just were enveloped in their sound I mean they had these mm -hmm. big huge sounds and their their concept of how they were gonna play it was so easy to play with these guys um, they're great examples to have but when I was growing up in high school, I wanted to be a lead trombone player because I didn't know how to improvise, basically. And finally, you know, my dad kind of gave me some clues, and I, I put two and two together, and I became a good improviser. And then I always didn't want to—I didn't want to play the lead trombone. I, did, I, I sat second or third for years and years and years, and finally, until the leader said, "Andy, I want you to play first. And I'm, I'm like this. I'm like shaking, like, "Why? You know, I have no idea why this guy wants me to play first trombone." And it's I'm really just, just fifth trumpet, though. It does, it. So yeah. it's really not that high pressure of a chair. In you the know? lead trumpet player's mind, yeah. yeah. I always look at you got like fifth trumpet. So. And no, but I feel I always feel like, uh, of course, with Wayne makes it so easy because of his musicality and intonation and time feel and everything's there, you know. Um, and I feel that we lock in, we, we hook in with the drummer and the rhythm section together and we just work as a unit without even having to say anything or think about it, really. I don't have to think about it when I play with Wayne. I don't have to think about a release. I know where he's going to release the notes. I know where he's going to place the notes. So it's been become a secondary thing, like a second nature kind of a thing, playing with Wayne and with uh, certain rhythm guys around town. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's totally fun. I mean, it's mm -hmm. great because I don't really... I hate to blow up his ego even more. Jeez. <laughs> My head's not fitting in the screen. You don't run across lead trumpet players with all that he has to offer as right, far as right. you know, uh, musicality, the range of the instrument, playing the horn top to bottom at a high level, and regardless of the style of music, 
all those things put together, um, it's just very easy. You know, it, he makes it very easy. And I feel that uh, me being improv an improviser, I think that helps me out a little bit. It didn't help me at first, but now I know how to approach a piece of music and look at it and conceive it and play it, you know, mm -hmm. without too much effort, you know. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, it's just a concept, I think, and he makes it easy. Yeah, you know, you, I'm sure you have players you play with all the time. Having the luxury of working with, you know, as great as players are, if you have two really good players and you put them together in a lot of different situations. So we play together a lot, a lot of sessions. So I think you can go to a, even a, a place in the music that most people can't go. Mm -hmm. Because I the same with him. I know his playing very well. And uh, I hate to say this on the record, but I actually will <laughs> defer to Andy. <laughs> and I go to his time field. Like if something's not right, I always question myself first and go, okay, I think I'm rushing that a little bit because he's got it. A Andy has uh, unbelievably great time. Yeah. I mean, really just his time is quantized so well that, uh, you know, even, you know, I could be playing it a little faster and rushing and it would still sound okay. It wouldn't sound out of a time. But he's so quantized and right that, you go to that, and then, oh, wow, the, the music gets thicker. It gets better. It feels better, you know, especially like intricate 16th notes in the middle between notes, things like that that people tend to generalize. Right. He doesn't generalize any of that and doesn't let me generalize it. Um, but that's a whole other <laughs> class we could do on Andy Martin barking orders at me. <laughs> you know, but, I, but it's okay, and we kind of do that with each other. And, and if he feels like something is a little bit, I go, oh, that was me. I'm sorry I'm a little low on that note. But we really, uh, on shows and whatever, we're sitting next to each other, we fine-tune everything we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, on, on dates, we just we make sure we're locking in with the drummer and we're laying down a good pitch center for everybody else to follow. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And if you get everybody doing that, unfortunately, not everybody does that all the time, but, but uh, like, like the group of players in New York you work with, you have your nucleus of players, you go in and do a date, it's going to be right. Yeah, and we have that here too. And there's a, you know, would pretty. You know, yeah. Cool. When you walk in the room, you see who's there. You know, it's going to be. It's going to cool. be all right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, if you see Chuck Finley, you're, you're in good hands. Yeah, we're, we're going to be all right here. You know, and those other guys you see, and you go, oh, okay, we might have problems. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Just I think for both you guys, I mean, the 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 attention to detail in, like you're saying, you know, in terms of the time feel, like so important, and and both of you, the, the consistency factor is huge, and I think. As a section player, or a lead player, but certainly when you're playing in the section, to have the luxury of knowing that both of you guys are going to be, it's going to be the same. You know, once you get it locked in, it's going to be, to me, that was always a, a special thing about the way you guys play. It's just the consistency is yeah. at a very high level. It, it, it makes it fun. I mean, doing a, doing a show, uh, you know, eight shows a week, we just playing the same thing every night. And then you really start fine-tuning because you're playing the same thing. Well, we're playing this thing. Let's make this as good as we can make it. Yeah. And even the last show we did, I mean, it got it started off great, and then as we went, it got better yeah. and better and better and better and better. Mm -hmm. You know, and little style things, whatever. I'd hear him, you know, do a little trombone, you goofing off, crap, you guys do whatever that is. <laughs> got this move one moving part, and you're you're doing stuff. But it's you know, and so I would get get in on it, you know, and uh, you know. And people notice, and by the end of the thing, it's like this cool thing. So it takes it to the next level, I think. I think it's, and you even touched on another thing, which I think is very helpful for students. It's like you guys at the top, the best players in the world, and you're still still refining the music as it goes along. So that's a good lesson for all of us. It's yeah. like this, it, it doesn't end. You know what, while we're on the subject of uh, lead playing and big bands, let's just talk a little bit about some of the great bands that you guys are a part of here in L.A. Of course, Gordon Goodwin's band is an amazing band. What an ensemble. I've yeah. heard the band a couple times. Live. In fact, I think out in, at the Elmhurst Jazz Festival, I heard you guys a couple times. It was 
mind-blowing. I mean, it's just amazing. But other great bands, Bob Florence, of course, Tom Kubis, Sammy Nestico. I was always a big fan of the uh, the Pat Metheny music record that uh, Bob Kernow did. I thought you guys both played so beautifully. It's great. It's a great, great. Yeah. Um, but anyway, maybe just touch on a couple of the, your favorite yeah, big well, band things you guys we've do. We've got most of our, bulk of our playing together in Tom Kubis' band, I yeah, believe. I mean, I, that's, that's when we really started working a lot together. And uh, George Graham was actually the first trumpet player in the band, but Wayne got a lot of the first trumpet stuff because of, he's Wayne, you know. But <laughs> and that's that's the first leader that told me to play first trombone. I was sitting second, third, just waiting for the okay. next solo. You know, it's okay, I'll just gear up for the next solo. And he says, you play first. I'm going, okay, whatever. So I was thrown into the fire. And that band is just fantastic because technically it's really difficult to play Tom's music because sometimes he just writes these fast things that just are almost unplayable. And so it was a challenge to play the music. Mm. And Tom's just a beautiful guy. I don't know if you ever met oh, him, but he's, he's yeah. just a he's super a great, sweetheart. great cat, man. Yeah. Yeah. Always a fan of his music. Yeah, and he's a beautiful musician. I heard him when he was in college because my oldest brother went to Long Beach State with Tom. And I remember hearing Tom. He wrote all the charts for the big band. He was playing all the first tenor solos, and he was just a monster. Just, yeah. I mean, at a young age, he was just a monster. In fact, he posted something on Facebook the other day where he did some television show in the, when he was in high school, the Ted Mack the amateur hour. Amateur hour, yeah. And so he was there playing soprano sax, playing some dictionary thing. He was just phenomenal. Anyway, so we played in Tom Coops' band, and he was working a lot at a weekly gig down at um, in Huntington Beach, and we were just uh, got a lot of exposure recording with him and, and playing with him. And, and in fact, we got a review once when they talked about <laughs> these. I mean, we were just scraping by financially. We were just kids, we're just, just kids, scraping yeah. by. Yeah. yeah, we got this re this this record review saying this. all these. Hollywood musicians Sun driving tan. down from the hill. Yeah, suntan Hollywood musicians driving down from their their homes in the Hollywood hills <laughs> to record Asia. this music. There was <laughs> a bunch of twenty three year old kids. And yeah, <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. But there was so there's one band, and um, <laughs> I got uh, I got to play in Bill Holman's band for about 15, 20 years, which is great. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. neglected to mention that one. Obviously, yeah, that's it a was great one. just it was just a learning experience. Every just the way he writes, and every chart has his stamp on it. But they're all different, and they're all fascinating. And you can just get lost in the music if you're not paying attention because you're listening. If you start listening too much, you're done because mm. you're oh, wow, what's that? Oh, oh my, oh, oh, where am I? Because <laughs> you're supposed to be on your own, you know? Yeah. But, um, and Gordon's, Gordon's band is just great because, you know, his writing is just second to none, really. It's, it's, it's just, it's unique. It's different. Every chart's different because he writes different styles of music, not just swing stuff or this. He writes funk music and Latin music and and uh, all kinds of different things. And it's, it's, it's a great experience to do because you are playing a lot of different kinds of, kinds of music, even some classical things thrown in there, you know, some real mm -hmm. subtle things. But he doesn't do ballads. That's one thing he doesn't do. <laughs> well, we got one, though. The new record has a ballad on it, though. Oh, did one passage. On oh, wow. It's probably a fast ballad, you know. Well, it's got a double time section in the middle. Of course, yeah, you can't <laughs> just play a ballad. But, but I, I tend to agree with Andy. <clears throat> Tom Cooper, that's a probably a good example. Because um, I learned a lot there. Because George Graham was, was a veteran lead trumpet player there. And getting him, getting to hear him play, and he brought a lot of experience and old school. He was the only one, the one <laughs> guy in the band. We were all kids except for George. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. he's the yeah. old school lead trumpet sound, and uh, and like Andy mentioned, you know Dick Nash and these guys, and the, and as you know, th these players came from another time where they played differently, and uh, and Warren Looning and George and uh, and guys like that come from that. Warren was the last one from that era, really, and he's gone now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah. That had that old school. Thing where very easy to play with, and you don't have to question anything. And if the music, he, he reads the music, but uh, you know, if the note, if it's written off on three, but it's really too early, he's not going to go off on three. He's going to take it to the natural place. And you don't have to ask, you know, you already know. And so playing with Warren was always, uh, in my opinion, uh, 
the greatest lead trumpet player I knew in Los Angeles. Wow. As great as everybody is, Warren brought more to the table than anybody I've ever met. Oh. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, he's phenomenal. He was, uh, you he know, was fantastic. And maybe back in the day, you know, the Manny Kleins and those okay. cats. He, Warren comes from that mold mm-hmm. where, you know, they knew tunes. And, you know, modern day players don't know a lot of tunes. Like, you know, Warren could go do a four-hour gig playing all tunes. Right. You know, and yeah, he could he, sit he down. He didn't really read chord changes. It's oddly enough, you know, we'd be in a recording session. There'd be chord changes in front of him. And he would... He wouldn't read them. He would just hear them and play them. Wow. Completely natural uh, style and ability. And, you know, and I think, you know, the heart of it all, man, that's what you're supposed to, what we're striving for, I think, you know. Then he would sit down, he'd play first trumpet in the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. No matter what came up, whether it was his cup of tea or not, he would always sound great. Mm. Whatever it was he had to play, whether it was, you know, Wagner, he he would play with a beautiful sound and great pitch and great style and then turn right around and play the most blazing Dixieland you've ever heard, and then, you know, pound out a high F at the end of this big band chart. Wow. And, you know, all without a problem. Anyway, so I, I miss him dearly, and yeah. huge influence on my playing. Yeah. Not a note I play that I don't think, well, how would Warren play this? Wow, that's great to have somebody like that. And it's amazing, and be accepting that into your, into your own playing. That's great. Um, let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about your guys' solo work. Um, Andy, you've released now over a dozen records, I think, as a, as a leader or yeah. a co-leader. A um, couple of my favorites. I still like your uh, leading off CD. You're probably the only it? guy on earth that has one of those copies. <laughs> he used it as a co-leader. Yeah, I have four of them. And I, and I love, uh, I love the, the Metropole one uh, that you yeah. did. Oh, that yeah. You mentioned earlier. That's really great. And, uh, and of course, the one you did with Carl Fontana, I think, is uh, yeah. really special. And uh, Wayne, just to uh, I'm looking at it so I make sure I get the titles right, but you call this a living, which I think you were nominated for a Grammy yeah. for that one. And uh, the other one played well, plays well with others, and you said you got a new one that you're working on yeah. right now. Yeah, got five so. tunes done, and so we'll go back in and have to run up another credit card and <laughs> do another session. You know, I, we're very familiar with <laughs> yeah, I know you are. Um, you maybe talk a little bit about how you guys approach solo as a solo artist, and then you know how you approach playing as a leader as opposed to the way you would do uh, as a sideman. Um, you know, Andy probably approaches this very differently because Andy is more of a, I mean, Andy's a great jazz trumpet, a great jazz player. And I'm, you know, I just kind of improvise for fun and kind of learning as I go, you know. <laughs> so he would prefer to like sit down and just play live with the band. And most recordings we've done, when they ask, you know, they'll ask if you want over your W solo, uh, you know, Andy will say, I'll, I'll play live. You know, he'll be the guy to say, Let's just do it. Yeah. And yeah. Warren was like that too. If I, you don't mind me telling one more. No, more no, not at all. <clears throat> We're doing a Bob Florence record. And, uh, and uh, he was asking guys if they wanted over and everybody and all these great players too was saying they want over to their solos and the guys that don't need to do that but they just for safety's sake yeah they would do it you know and then he goes Warren you want over over W solo he goes well, why the hell would I do that that's not jazz <laughs> <laughs> and it was just and then he stood up and he paid the played the most blazing solo on uh, wow. on uh, how deep is the ocean to call oceanography mm-hmm. like real up though and just one take. <laughs> That's done, yeah. you know, perfect. And it's like, there you go. He goes, that's jazz, you know, so. Awesome. Um, but anyway, maybe yeah. talk a little bit about how you you guys, you know, I mean, so you've done so many well, now. Andy, yeah, it's approach. interesting because when you're doing your own record, it's hard. It's difficult because you, you're the leader and you have a lot of responsibilities. As you know, you know, you've done it a number of times. And, and so you have to worry about paying the engineer and you got to worry about, okay, all these other things other than music. Hopefully you're prepared when you go into the studio to, to play, but that's always seems to be the hardest thing to me to get into gear to play, to, to be creative um, as a soloist on a record because you have so many other things to think about. 
But uh, I did a couple records with this producer named Dick Bank, and um, that was different because he chose the tunes, he chose the players, even though it was just a quartet record, and I was the, the mm. only horn player. Mm -hmm. But he chose everything except for the me. You know, I, I could just do my thing in his little format. So he's telling me how many courses to play. He's telling me oh, wow. it was kind of odd. You know? Even what tie to wear. Yeah, even what tie. He had me wear the corniest tie to the dick. If you're seeing this, God bless you. But that was an ugly tie you had me wear. Anyways. <laughs> And it was just, oh, actually, Stan Levy took the picture. You know, Stan Levy, the sure, jester. Yeah, yeah, he was a photographer. Yeah. And uh, he took the picture. I'm sure he's just rolling his eyes. In fact, he did roll his eyes at me a couple times, like, what's with this guy, man? <laughs> anyway, so, um, but he had control over the whole situation. And, you know, luck, and luckily for me, he paid me and he paid the other musicians and paid for the recording and paid for the liner notes and paid for the pictures and paid for, you know. So in that respect, it was great. But it wasn't my statement because... It wasn't a way, cause just my playing, but it wasn't how many courses I would have played, it wasn't the tunes I would have chosen, it wasn't all that other stuff. So the few times I've done that, it's been a lot more interesting for me because I did, my latest uh, quartet record was with Christian Jacob and Trey Henry and Ray Brinker, which is the mm. rhythm section I prefer to use most of the time if I can get them, you know. Yeah. Um, so if I get these guys, they're great, and Christian wrote these charts, and they're just beautiful. And, and so it was really inspiring to, you know, all the different f feels he gave the music with his arrangements, and all the, how creative those guys are on the spot, and how well they work together as a unit, because they've been a unit for a long time. Not only on Christian's uh, trio records, but on Tierney Sutton's records and different things they do as a trio. Right. So in that respect, playing was very easy because, and very difficult at the same time because the music was difficult, but it was easy to play with those guys, and it was what I would prefer to do every time. But the few times I've had records made for me, it's been kind of a little bit handcuffed, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but Wayne's making big band records, and he's got a whole different hat he wears on those things. Yeah, it's a different thing. For, for me... Um, I have to think about all those, I'm thinking about all those money issues, you know, when you're the leader, you be the nicest guy in the world, but as soon as you're paying the bill, you're like, all right, guys, let's get over here. <laughs> Shut up, quick goof off, you know. You become that guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, I just lost my, uh, my pack Make the 10-minute breaks eight minutes instead of Yeah, that's exactly, you know. But I mean, I try to, you know, of course, stay calm and make sure everybody's happy and have food there and all that. So there's a lot of stuff to think about, like you said, when you're the leader and the bill. But uh, for me, it's big band stuff, and most of my stuff is going to, you know, there's going to be an element of physical abuse <laughs> involved with the way everybody writes for me. I've got a pile of charts, guys that write for me. I go, okay, I can't play that live. I can't play that. I can, you know, I, I, I could do them one, maybe, but I can't do them in a seven-tune set. Right, right. So I have to pick the tunes I play based on, well, what can I really play Yeah. in a, in a live setting? So I kind of look at it like, even though I, I, I overdub a lot of my stuff, I play some of it live and then overdub some. It's a little mixture of both. But I have to think about my chops. And if I'm going to have to play this tune three times, I'm going to be done for the day. Yeah. And I got four other tunes to do. So uh, the way we did this last session is I would, uh, I kind of played a scratch track with the band and a little makeshift ISO booth. And then I, I just had three trumpets up there. And then I would do another take and I'd go sit and play fourth trumpet mm. and save a salary. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I figured, well, let's come back later. And, and I may play some of the melody stuff live. And then I'll come back and I'll, I'll go through this solo section or maybe the high part at the end. I'll overdub later. You know, which is a little bit, you know, there's a line of ethics, <laughs> you know, but I think well, my, yeah. my, my take on it is uh, if you can reproduce it live, you're just trying to get your best performance recorded onto those uh, discs, you know, and uh, so that's kind of how I approach it. So I, when, when I'm playing, I try to make sure everything I'm playing on there is not studio magic mm -hmm. and I'll play something and, I, and I'm not going to piece something together like a bunch of high things, you know, and then never be able to play it. And I think that's that's crossing the ethics line a little bit. So, you know, I have to think about that when I'm when I'm doing this. And then soloing wise, I try to pick tunes 
I'm not a great improviser. I'm not going to be playing on really hard tunes or really burning fast tempos. That's just not what I do. Like him, I wanted to be a lead trumpet player. So that's all I did going through. I didn't improvise through high school. I did, but kind of, you know, I didn't know that it was you know, a flat tire and a flat nine. <laughs> just, just crashing and burning at every two five, you know. I figured a double high C works here. <laughs> and everybody clap. I go, see, that's good. You know? <laughs> it's the great equalizer, you know. So, uh, so in a nutshell, that's... <clears throat> You know, I, I approach it like that, and uh, so I have a home studio now to save money, like I was explaining. I'm, yeah, have Pro Tools and a really nice wearer mic and a nice mic pre, and I can, I can do things and save thousands of dollars. You know, yeah, that's on, that's great. Doing my own. Uh, and I, I have to say, just having heard you so many times live, there's there's not much that you can't play, and and there is no studio magic. For you, it ends up being like, well, this is just going to make it. I can make the session go longer, and you know, to make this thing work. It's not a question of uh, studio magic where you're concerned, I have to say. Yeah, well, people, I mean, you'd be surprised. People always, you know, question that, you know, and they, and they... Well, then they need to hear you play live. Yeah. And then so that, I try to, well, I try to reproduce it live. And, but actually, you know, one of those things, and you might notice this too, from doing overdub things, where maybe you've worked a solo out on something, we played 16 bars, and then you sucked, and you go, well, let me just, let me play another 16 bars. You maybe piece a couple of things together. And you and it's really good, you know. And then you kind of learn something from that. You go, man, that's that's cool the way that goes together. And you'll learn that. And yeah. It's part of your arsenal of that direction anyway, you know. So for me, uh, being doing a doing a couple of CDs has made me a better jazz player, you know. Uh, sure. I feel a little yeah. more confident now. If I have to do that in a situation, I'm not so terrified to yeah to blow. Usually, there's a bunch of trumpet players that, that do that, you know. So I don't even bother with. It. I go, let me hit the double high C, and you. Play that flat nine, and we'll all be go away happy, <laughs> you know. Yeah, good stuff. Um, you guys are both Yamaha artists and clinicians, and I think you get a big hand in the designing the instruments you guys both play. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think there's some He element. did more designing than I did. I played a lot of the instruments for Yamaha and two of their horns, and I think Wycliffe uh, played a lot for them. So basically that means sitting in the room and just playing the instrument, trying another slide with another bell, trying this with that, try, and playing the same kind of exercises over and over and over again so people listening can check it out and they ask you how you feel playing the horn. And that's usually what, you know, hey, the slide feels great. It feels like a quick response. It feels good. This feel, doesn't feel so good. So we, you know, kind of honed it in over a series of, you know, a number of times doing it, maybe five or eight times. I went to the Yamaha place, mm -hmm. played horns for them and gave them my input. Um, Wayne was more into the designing, like let's drill this size of whatever, and you know, I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to all that stuff. I just get something I like, and then I just, yeah. <laughs> I get something I like, and I just play it. Yeah, you know, sure. he, he, he hones it in and figures out, you know, like the little rubber bottom thing on the slide is gonna make the tone change completely. Yeah, right, you know. All the voodoo. I'm, not the, I'm, not the, I'm, not, I'm not the voodoo guy. He's the voodoo guy. There is some voodoo involved with yeah. all that. You know, we actually we do a little thing where we light incense and wave a dead rat over the thing and it plays better. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I was just trying that myself last yeah. week. Actually, it does but, work well. But Bob Malone approached me uh, years ago about you know jumping on board with Yamaha, and uh, when we started designing the horn, I said my only prerequisite with this is I want to just for me to sign off on this, it has to play better than what I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be one of those players that you know gets involved with a big company. And there's all the perks of that, you know. And then they don't really play the instrument. And there's a lot of those people. I mean, it's the Yamaha artists, and I see them on sessions. are not playing. I was like, hey, yeah, come on, man, these people are going to hang you for clinics and stuff. So uh, fortunately, I had, you know, I got to help design. So I, here I have my role model here. I wanted to play better than this. So Bob Malone and I, it was a five-year five -year trek mm. from start to horn wow. being on the market. And That's a pretty good uh, we, chunk yeah, we, of time. We made different lead pipes and moved braces. I mean, it was very intricate. And he's right. There was a little voodoo. voodoo. We're moving this brace, you know, a 32nd of an inch this way and moving the bell brace and changing the bell bead. 
and uh, you know, trying different weighted caps, and because weight, you know, a rubber stopper is not going to do anything. But if you add, you know, five ounces to a trumpet, it's going to play different. You know, that's a lot of weight. Yeah, know, on an instrument that doesn't weigh that much. So, and depending where it's placed, you know, stuff near the end of the bell, the way it resonates, and so, do we have it perfect? You know, I don't know. There's human elements involved. So when you're testing, you know, the next time it's different. So you have to. For for me, what I did was I I started doing blindfold tests. I even did it with Andy actually. Where I'd take this, my Yamaha and my old trumpet, which was a Canstle, which was a really great horn. I played for years, made, played many good notes on it. Um, and it always still, because it was like that old shoe, even felt better. No matter how good this played, I go, ah, this is better. Mm -hmm. So I started doing blindfold tests with the people with Yamaha. It made them all turn around so there's no Yamaha bias. And I put the horns through their test. And, uh, and, every, and I'd keep notes. And every positive remark was for the Yamaha. I'm going, oh, it's just not true. It doesn't feel that way. And I said it with college kids. I did it with Andy. I did it with violinists. And so that's how I ended up. <laughs> Even, what with Even violinists. violinists. Yeah. Well, I mean, because they don't, they're not listening to trumpet stuff. They're listening for, they're listening for other stuff. I don't know what it is. Yeah. They, they don't, apparently, apparently, they don't really listen to anything most of the time. But, but at least they can say, well, that's less abrasive than the first one. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that one a little less. So. Yeah, that was my test. I said, that hurts. Okay, and that hurts. Okay, that hurts more. Is that better? But that's, I would say that was better. It hurt more. <laughs> So that, anyway, that's kind of how the design came to be. And it's actually been a very popular horn amongst the... Uh, the idea was to make a horn that could do everything. Right. So you, a horn that's not too bright. And uh, a lot of classical players use it as their instrument of uh, B-flat of choice. Uh, a lot of jazz players will get them. They actually take the lacquer off. I know a lot of the jazz are guys playing raw brass. And then a lot of lead trumpet players. I see in a lot of college bands when I go to play. There's a lot of them in the ranks there, along with Bobby Shue's horn. Right, right. And it's kind of the bookend to his horn in a lot of ways. Same design concepts in there. But. Well, that's great. Congratulations with that. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of trumpet players in New York who've told me that it's a great horn. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, I'm really proud of what, how it came out. And I designed the whole thing from scratch myself. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> if you believe that. <laughs> Um, I would imagine that the music business here in L.A. has changed dramatically over the last 15, 20 years, like it has in New York. Um, I'd be curious to hear your guys' feeling about the state of the business as it is right now, and maybe also where you, and Andy, you talked about looking forward, uh, where do you see things going in the next decade or two? Hmm, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Well, Wayne and I were kind of odd birds as far as we grew up in Los Angeles, kind of. We grew up in the city. And a lot of the players are from elsewhere, as you know. You know, there's, they all, you know, seems like 90% of them migrated from somewhere else to, to be here in Los Angeles to work the situation, work the studios here, or do whatever they want in the music business here in Los Angeles because it's such a huge scene. Um, where it's going now is, is different. It's just it's difficult to, you know, to say what's going to happen in the future because um, everything's kind of going elsewhere as far as worldwide competition for movie scores, for TV scores, for whatever. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, there's a lot of options out there for a producer. And if a producer's real cheap and they would just want to go, oh, well, I'll just take this guy because he's cheaper. Well, yeah, go, go ahead. But I think as far as the product, there are so many great players here in Los Angeles that have done it and have the experience doing it. I think anybody's better off recording music here in Los Angeles because of the experience factor and the fact that, you know, the business is here, the, the films are usually made here because there's so many different areas where you can film things and have a different feel for, you know, a scene. Um, but... 
where the business is going. Gosh, I had, luckily we're both diversified. We don't just do movie scores. We don't just do this type of work or that right, type of work. Right. You know, we're doing theater work. We're doing the movie work. We're doing TV work, records, and whatever comes. You know, I, I work on Dance with the Stars and some TV shows that are pretty cool. I mean, they're great. Yeah. I hope maybe the the bringing bands back to TV is going to be a trend. You know, because they're all copycats basically. Yeah. Well, TV business is all copycats. If, if a jingle company has a successful ad campaign with a with a bass going, then everybody's doing that, right? So that's just how they do it. You know, so there's a successful TV show called Dance with the Stars with an 18 piece band and four singers, and it's great. And hopefully people go, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's try that. You know. Yeah. So it's all kind of on these people's whims that are in charge basically if they want to spend the money to do it and get a cool product they'll do it if they want to cheap out and make it cheesy and they'll do that too so i'm hoping they'll the first thing will be the option most of the time but i'm optimistic i mean i'm um i enjoy doing what i do i love playing studio work i love jazz stuff i love playing in big bands and and doing my guest solo things out of town i just love it all so if you diversify i think there's a possibility of making it as a musician yeah yeah, I mean, in, in this climate, you have to, I think you have to diversify. Um, Andy and I are probably kind of a, an interesting example, because I would say where a lot of players are complaining that their work has declined, I would say our work has gotten better True. in the last five years for yeah. guys like you and I, because we didn't come up the ranks doing all, doing everything. Like we didn't, doing every, there was no splash, like Wayne Bergeron's now in town, you know, he grew up kind of struggling as a player, me too, mm. grew up struggling as a player and got better as the years went by. So anyway, sorry so to So we've kind of, no, it's okay, we, uh, we kind of worked our way through the system, and so some new composers have come along and taken. So we've gotten our own little niche going, you know, as well as being involved in the other things. So I've seen, even though my movie, my movie work is maybe down from five years ago, I look at it, oh, I didn't do as many movies, but I did, man, I did 10 guest soloist things more. Mm-hmm. And I, and why? Well, I worked at the Pantages Theater for six months. And, uh, and financially, it was better. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just didn't do as many movies. And that work, like what he's explaining, that's gonna, I can see that kind of thing phasing away as it has from New York. and. Mm-hmm and other places as they go to Prague and they go to Moscow and they go to wherever they go and do it for one-tenth the cost. And you, you can't really fault a producer for doing that. You know, it's yeah, a, you yeah. know when it comes down to it, they're going, well, God, this is going to cost how much money? <laughs> you know, if you've got a big, huge budget, it probably shouldn't matter. You should probably get the best product you can get. They go to London and they get a fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you argue with that? Yeah, yeah. they're great. And yeah. it's, a, it's, it's about the same money up front, but then, you know, there's no, they don't have to pay any health benefits. They have the health benefits. They don't have to pay any reuse because they're not part of the AF of M. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's you know, it, it's, there's going to be competition. London has always been competition for the United States, recording-wise. Uh, these other places, you know, and now they're doing them remotely. So it's, I think that's a little bleaker picture, don't you think? The motion picture part of it anyway. Yeah. But other things, like you said, like the Dancing with the Stars, when American Idol started putting that live band on there, and you could see the band. When we did it, it used to pre-record. Then they had that live band, then Dance with the Stars, so it becomes the thing, kind of. And if a producer says that's cool, then everybody thinks it's cool if the right person says it. Yeah. If it's an all-banjo band and the producer thinks it's cool, banjos are going to become very popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Andy, and, and, and Wayne as well. It's like, I think it, when you see a band on TV, it's golden. You know, it's it doesn't, I mean, obviously it's great when it's the best quality players in town, but even if it's not, it's yeah. like yeah. just, it's exposure for live music, it's exposure exactly. for instruments, it's good. You like know? for instance, uh, uh, Justin Timberlake now has a, uh, his traveling band has horns in it, and it's like, right. like that's, that's great, they yeah. keep that going. These guys are out front playing, you know, everybody's showing off and stuff, and people see that, wow, I don't, I've never seen those things before, what are those yeah. things, you know, the young, the young crowd, what's that thing that goes like this? Well, <laughs> it's a trombone. Hey, that's pretty cool, maybe, you know, so it might, you know, grow and grow and grow. Yeah. 
I know Prince is out. My buddy Nick Marchion is out with Prince right now, and he's got 10 or 11 pieces. He's got double, double horns. Yeah, oh, wow. Double horns. Really? It's, yeah, it's oh, cool. uh, phenomenal. But, uh, but uh, well, listen, guys, it's just it's been great spending some time with you today. As as we close out, I, I kind of always like to close with that because we have a lot of young reviewers, and, and they look up to you, as I do, uh, to no end. Um, we kind of addressed it a little bit, but it, do you have any specific advice for a young brass player who's out there in college right now and thinking, you know, I'd really like to to come to LA. I mean, I think you already touched on it on some level with the versatility aspects. I think it's huge. Yeah. But is there anything else you'd add to that mix? Well, the thing I haven't mentioned is bass trombone because uh, uh, I play quite a bit of bass trombone because if I didn't, I wouldn't work probably half the jobs I get called for. I wouldn't even be considered for them. So I say the part of the diversification is uh, playing multiple instruments, and I think bass trombone is a key. Um, I'm buying a contra bass trombone. I don't think I you know it. that. Oh, yeah, so. Chinese made horn, $1,100. I've heard all about it. And yeah, there's about six people getting them. Yeah, so, you know, to, and to become good on these instruments is kind of difficult. I got good playing bass trombone just because I had Phantom of the Opera at the theater, and I played it for six months straight. And mm -hmm. I had to play the damn thing every day, and I had to sound good on it, and I, it, I practiced for years and years before that. I never felt like I played very well. But that preparing for that and then having that job made me play every day for hours. And so mm -hmm. just having that experience got me to be a good player. But diversification, try to get into arranging. Like you're the, one of the best arrangers I know. Mm -hmm. You know, you get, into, get into something like that. Get into some comp composing, arranging, piano playing. Something that can make your whole musicality a much better thing. Um, I, I consider myself kind of a Neanderthal because I just—I mean, I just play the trombone. I don't really do much else. <laughs> I can't play piano. But he's being modest because he's written some nice tunes, and he doesn't just sit down and do it all the time. But you could. Yeah, yeah but I've, I've played some of your sextet arrangements, which I think are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, so I think you're selling short as well. But yeah, I think it's a very good point. What yeah. you're saying, you know. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I kind of agree with Andy on all of that. I mean, getting into the technical part of it, like you know, for me, like I've just dove, dove into the Pro Tools, you know. Uh, part of this thing and that's a whole nother art form in itself you know knowing how to do that but i think uh just something another feather you can put in your hat um as a as a trumpet player i mean i obviously you, have, you need to be able to fit the job description you need to be able to be the greatest player you can be and, and as many levels you can be as many styles you can play at um consistency is like is a big deal you know yeah. in a town like this because uh, you don't get too many shots at it so Makes it nerve-wracking, but you know, being able to play something under the gun. Mm -hmm. Like I've had students come to recording sessions with me, and they'd hear me play, you know, body, body, ba, ba, da, da, all by myself, and I go, I'm kind of, I'm nervous playing that because there's hundred string players staring at me. Sure, <laughs> no sure. Way, you know, and I, this student said, well, that doesn't seem that hard. I go, really? <laughs> so, okay, I want you to play it. No, wait. Now play. <laughs> yeah, right. let's, let's see how you do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that, that, that feeling. So, but I think, uh, you know, practice your butt off. Warm up the same way every day. Like, you know, you have these books out that outline everything. I think that's really important for, for a musician on any instrument for consistency. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to be able to do that. Once you, once you get to a level where you're competent and you come to a town like L.A. or New York or any big city that's got some work, um, I mean, your personality has a lot to do yeah, with it, too. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. Because, I mean, there's a lot of a-holes in, in our business, as yeah. you know. Yeah. They can play. Yeah. A lot of them can play. And they don't work. And they don't understand why they don't work. But so I think getting along with people and, I mean, my attitude is if I go in, if I'm playing third trumpet, um, my job is I'm going to make that first trumpet player want it. He need to have me there. Yeah. He can't do a job without me because I'm gonna make him sound as great as I can make him sound. I'm gonna follow him into the toilet if necessary. I'm gonna phrase with him, I'm gonna match his pitch. I'm gonna balance him. 
uh, and do all that. And there's players here that do like Larry Hall, kind of an un unsung hero yeah, great here. Great player, great player. You know, not a lead trumpet player necessarily, even though he could play some lead. You know, he doesn't have screaming high chops, but he's got solid range. But Kim playing second trumpet under you, there's nobody better, really. I mean, he's yeah. like, he gives this pad of sound and you play with them and your sound, they fit together like this and he makes you sound good. So who doesn't want that person? So that's, you need to try to be that person, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, from the, from the business side of it anyway. The music side of it should take care of itself. Obviously, you need to strive to be the greatest musicians possible. Yeah, well, that's great advice from both of you. Listen, to all of us, uh, we're going to keep an eye on uh, what you guys are doing with your solo projects and all the various things you're doing. Uh, WayneBertrand.com, and it is AndyBarton.com? Or Drew Bone. Drew Bone, yeah. right. Yeah. Sorry, DrewBone.com. So keep an eye on these guys. They're doing amazing work, as we all know. They've been doing it for so long. And uh, thank you guys for all the inspiration you give us as brass players. And, and thank you for me uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to uh, spend some time with us today. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Hey. Thanks for Thank you, Mike. Thank you. We'll see you all next time on Bone to Pick. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you want to honor your band director and win some great swag for your band program? Please like us on Facebook at Facebook.com and vote for your favorite educator at our Band Director of the Month program. Don't forget to visit www.hipbonemusic.com for more great interviews, information, and for a complete lineup of method books. We're here to help you get better. Thanks for listening.